This is C-SPAN's First Ladies in Their Own Words podcast. We're listening to the voices of eight modern First Ladies. In this episode, you'll hear from the 40th First Lady of the United States, Nancy Reagan. Born Anne Frances Robbins in 1921, she spent her early childhood in Maryland under the care of an aunt. Young Nancy then joined her mother in Chicago and was adopted by her mother's second husband, Dr. Loyal Davis, becoming Nancy Davis. During the 1940s and 50s, Nancy Davis was a Hollywood actress, starring in films such as The Next Voice You Hear and Donovan's Brain. In 1952, she married fellow actor Ronald Reagan, who was then president of the Screen Actors Guild. Ronald Reagan later successfully ran for governor of California as a Republican, and Nancy Reagan was First Lady of California, serving from 1967 to 1975. When Ronald Reagan was elected president in 1980, she served as the nation's first lady for eight years from 1981 through 1989. We begin with an interview conducted in 1985 by then NBC News White House correspondent Chris Wallace during Ronald Reagan's second term. On the teleprompter while you're reading the words. Is this the way you have it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hope we're rolling. <laughs> Am I? <laughs> How do you want to do it? It's just fine with me. (laughs) It appears to an observer that after 33 years of marriage, you two are still absolutely nuts about each other. Mrs. Reagan, how do you plead? (laughs) Guilty. Mr. President, how good a politician is Mrs. Reagan? Absolutely sensational, don't you think so? Took the words right out of my mouth. I think she's prompting you again. <laughs> Ms. Reagan, some people have suggested that you have been the driving force in your husband's career and that you wanted the presidency more than he did. Yeah, I know. I, I've, I've read that, too. Not true. I, I thought I married an actor. <laughs> and um, um, the... Actually, he was asked. He was asked to run for for uh, office uh, soon after we got married, and turned it down by the Democrats when he was still a Democrat. And um, then, when the governorship came along, I went along with it. But that wasn't something that I had carved out for for our future. And certainly, the presidency wasn't something that I said, "You've got to do this." No, that that isn't true. I think what people get mixed up uh, as far as I'm concerned and, and this whole thing of my my pushing pushing him that they don't understand that uh, if he had decided to go into the shoe business I'd be out pushing shoes y- you know, whatever Aren't you glad he didn't? <laughs> yes, now that was my next point <laughs> My next point was that that actually as it's all turned out he's given me the most um, fascinating, interesting, wonderful, frustrating at times, frightening at times, but a, a life I never, ever thought I'd have. That was Nancy Reagan from a 1985 Camp David interview conducted by then-NBC News Chief White House Correspondent Chris Wallace. The press and the public never tired of speculating about how political this former Hollywood actress actually was and how much influence she had on the 40th president. It wasn't until she left the White House that she felt fully free to address all those questions in her memoir. 
her effort, as she said, to let Nancy be Nancy. But she left plenty of clues along the way. Her public image in particular was a source of continuing frustration to her. You'll hear in her own voice how she experienced her White House years, featuring footage from C-SPAN's video library. First, Nancy Reagan on how she tried to counter negative publicity. Part of an interview with journalist Hedrick Smith, she's talking about her 1982 surprise performance at the Gridiron Club press dinner in Washington, known for its political parodies. This is Nancy Reagan in her own words. Secondhand clothes, secondhand clothes, they're all the rage at the spring fashion shows. Even my true new trench coat with fur collar Ronnie bought for 10 cents on the dollar. Secondhand gowns, old hand-me-downs, the china is the only thing that's new. Even though they tell me I'm no longer queen, did Ronnie have to buy me that new sewing machine? Secondhand clothes, secondhand clothes, I sure hope Edme sews. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I came around to thinking, well, all right, we'll try. I mean, it can't be worse than it was, you know. (laughs) And um, so she said, originally they had thought that I would make fun of the press. And I said, no, (laughs) no, no, that... I'm not going to do that. Um, the, the, only, the only way we could do this is if I make fun of myself. If I make fun of myself, then maybe I have a 50-50 chance here. <laughs> As you well know, <laughs> that first year was not... Nobody was really crazy about me. <laughs> and... Um, I don't think I'd have been crazy about me, reading what I did uh, about me. Press was rough. Press was rough. Um, I, and, I, I, and I really don't know why, because it started uh, before I ever got here. They didn't, they didn't know me, and uh, I never did quite figure out why. But anyway, I didn't know until I read it in your book that, um, that they were having meetings about me and over in the West Wing, that I was a, a liability and everything like that. Well, I guess maybe I was. I was pretty uh, gun-shy. I mean, it had been rough. And um, your inclination is to uh, run and hide in a closet and lock yourself in. You know, you, you tend to pull back when it's... Uh, I do it anyway, when it's that rough. Um, which is the wrong thing to do. You shouldn't do that, but I do. The same year as her 1982 Gridiron Club appearance, the First Lady spoke to the National Federation of Parents for Drug-Free Youth. Anti-drug policies were Nancy Reagan's signature issues in the White House. A young boy stood to address her during the question and answer period. Let's listen. And after Billy is going to be Topper Davis, and that will be a question to Dr. Carlton, uh, Dr. Turner. Well, Mrs. Reagan, um, just as a kid, I'd just like to thank you. Uh-huh. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I 
I really have a whole bunch of questions, but I'm going to try and hold it to just one. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> well, like the squeaky wheels, the druggies seem to get most of your attention. What would you recommend for parents and teachers, for us kids, for us many kids, who are responsible and drug-free? Yes, I know. It's, it's true. You're, you're absolutely right. Uh, Bad news seems to get um, more attention than, than good news. Um, as a matter of fact, Bill, can I tell this story? Sure. <laughs> uh, Bill was going to, Bill was on a morning show with a couple of his children and um, who had uh, had drug problems. But he has another child who has had no drug problems at all. And um, the two children who had had drug problems were on the program with him. And it was pretty exciting to them to be on this big show. But the other one said, Dad, you know, I haven't done anything. I've never, I've never smoked pot. I've never taken anything. And I don't get to go on national television. And that doesn't seem fair. So uh, they asked me if I would go on the program. And I said, um, yes, I'll go on if I can take his other child on. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm not through. <laughs> I've got more. <laughs> um, I had, I had a letter from a, a girl about your age, I think. I made the statement that I thought probably most young kids had tried pot at one time or another. And she misunderstood or, or it was, anyway, there was a misunderstanding. She thought that I said all young people. And she wrote me indignantly and said, Mrs. Reagan, I want you to know that I've never tried drugs. I've never been on drugs. My friends have never been on drugs. And we have no intention of going on drugs. And it's dumb. And I wish you wouldn't say that anymore. <laughs> I was very happy to get her letter. I thought that was wonderful. And I wrote her and told her I hadn't really said what she thought I'd said. But you know, it's a, it is a terrible problem, isn't it, in, in the whole, not just with drugs, but with everything today, we seem to be playing up the negative rather than the positive. And there's so many positive things that we can talk about and so many positive things that people do. At, at the White House, my husband gives awards to people, to young people, to elderly people, to middle people. <laughs> who have done really marvelous things, wonderful things that we never hear anything about. But we hear always about the, the ones who've done the bad things, the terrible things. And we're dragged down by that, I think. And all I would like to see is a little balance. <laughs> you know, fine to talk about the things that are going on that are wrong and shouldn't be going on. But for heaven's sakes, let's give a little pat on the back to the people who are out there doing these great things every single day because they are out there, but we never hear about them.
and I agree with you that it's wrong. You're listening to First Ladies in Their Own Words, and we'll be right back. Late in the Reagan's second term, the First Lady went to the United Nations, where she delivered a blunt warning about the dangers of drug use in the United States and throughout the world. This is Nancy Reagan in her own words at the United Nations. It gives me pleasure on behalf of the Third Committee to welcome among us today the representative of the United States of America, Mrs. Nancy Reagan, First Lady of the United States, and I invite her to make her statement. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'm delighted to be here as the member of the U.S. delegation to speak before the Third Committee of the United Nations General Assembly on a matter of urgent importance to all of us. The Third Committee is now considering agenda items on youth, families, and crime prevention. I want to talk to you about the illegal use of drugs and the direct impact it's having on families and especially children. I come before the United Nations today as a wife and a mother and one who has had a unique opportunity to see the impact of the drug problem, not only in the United States, but in many areas of the world. I worked on this problem with many distinguished people represented on this committee. I've had the opportunity to travel to many parts of the world and have seen the problem firsthand. I've also been privileged to work on two occasions with Mrs. Perez de Cuellar. In 1985, she joined me and 29 other First Ladies from around the world when we gathered at the United Nations to discuss the drug issue. Our message was this. As mothers were concerned, as First Ladies were committed, and as citizens of the world, we pledged to do all that's possible to stop this scourge. Last year, Mrs. Perez de Cuellar and I prepared a videotape message for the first international conference on drug abuse and illicit trafficking. At that conference, held at the initiative of the, of the Secretary General, 138 countries joined together in declaring that stopping drug abuse and illicit trafficking is a universal priority. I'm deeply heartened that the United Nations is near completion on a new anti-drug trafficking convention that will affirm what every mother, every parent knows, that drug traffickers are international criminals who deserve no rest or sanctuary. The international efforts against drugs are of vital importance and must be expanded. And I would add that even though I have some harsh things to say about illegal drug consumption in the United States, I also intend to speak very plainly about the countries that supply this demand. However, let me say at the outset that it's the United States alone which bears responsibility for its own drug problem. I'm not blaming other nations for America's drug problem. While most of the illegal drugs are imported, the drug users are homegrown. To find America's drug problem, we've had to look no far further than our own communities, our neighbors, our sons and daughters. To get serious about stopping illegal drugs, 
there can be no substitute for focusing on the user, and that means confronting all those citizens who use drugs. Now, frankly, it's far easier for the United States to focus on cocoa fields grown by 300,000 campesinas in Peru than to shut down the dealer who can be found on the street corner of our cities. It's often easier to make strong speeches about foreign drug lords or drug smugglers than to arrest a pair of Wall Street investment bankers buying cocaine on their lunch break. Yes, we need to break the back of the drug cartels. We need to eradicate cocoa fields and interdict narcotics in transit. But we will not get anywhere if we place a greater burden of action on foreign governments than on America's own mayors, judges, and legislators. You see, the cocaine cartel doesn't begin in Medellin. It begins in the streets of New York, Miami, Los Angeles, every American city where crack is bought and sold. It's the drug user who makes the cartel possible, who provides the market, who funds the enterprise. And the drug user is an accomplice to every criminal act, every murder, every terrorist attack carried out by the narcotic syndicate. If we lack the will to fully mobilize the forces of law in our country to arrest and punish drug users, if we can't step if we cannot stem the American demand for drugs, then there will be little hope of preventing foreign drug producers from fulfilling that demand. But if we can control that demand and curtail the drug consumption in our own country, then our efforts can succeed and the international drug narcotics rings can and will be defeated. Now, let me state clearly, notwithstanding a few voices on the fringes, I don't believe the American people will ever allow the legalization of drugs in our country. The consensus against drugs in the United States has never been stronger. We clearly understand that drugs must remain illegal at every step in the chain. If it's illegal to, draw, to grow cocoa in Peru, to process it into cocaine in Colombia, to ship it through the Caribbean, then it must be illegal to buy or use cocaine in the United States. And that is the way it must and will remain. Early in Ronald Reagan's presidency, he was shot in an assassination attempt as he left a Washington hotel speech. Nancy Reagan would later say that the trauma of that day never left her. She talked with C-SPAN's Brian Lamb about rushing to her husband's side. We got downstairs, and he kept saying, you I said, I'm going to the hospital. And he said, it, it's not necessary. He hasn't been hurt. They're on the, he, it's not necessary. And I said, George, you either get the car or I'm going to walk. <laughs> and uh, we got to the hospital, and Mike Deaver met me at the hospital and said he has been shot. And um, there were police all around and a lot of noise. And uh, they put me in a little small room. There was one desk and one chair. That was it. And I kept wanting to see Ronnie here. And um, 
they kept saying, well, he, he's all right, but you can't see him. And I kept saying, well, if he's all right, why can't I see him? And um, uh, finally they let me see him. He was lying there with that thing on his face to help him breathe. And he lifted it up, and that's when he said, Honey, I forgot, forgot, forgot to duck. The First Lady was as guarded about the president's political well-being as she was about his physical safety. In that same interview, she talked about her political antenna. I think I just had little antennas that went up <laughs> and told me when somebody had their own agenda and not, and not Ronnie's. And, um, and then I'd tell him. He didn't always agree with me, but I'd tell him. And it usually worked out. What was the first thing that you would notice when somebody had their own agenda? I, you just know. You just, I, you can't say just something that you, you just know if, you're, if you have those antennas. <laughs> In 1994, the former First Lady sat down with historian Carl Anthony before an audience of hundreds at Washington's Mayflower Hotel. She revealed that she had no interest in politics as a young woman and explained why she left her Hollywood career behind. She talked about the tumult surrounding her cancer surgery when she lost her mother and prepared for the arrival of the Soviet power couple, Mikhail and Raisa Gorbachev. Join me in a round of applause for Nancy Reagan. and a few friends. <laughs> I was thinking something that uh, nobody I know has, has ever asked, or at least I've never seen it written or published anywhere or, or on television. Your mother was a very strong Democrat and yes. your father a Republican. Yes. Well, yes. <laughs> My mother was a very strong Democrat. My father really wasn't too interested in politics, but let leaned more to Republicans. When you were younger, what were your politics, or was it something that even interested you? Didn't know one thing about it. Not a thing. And when we got married, I didn't know anything about it. Everything I learned, I learned during our courtship and, and, uh, and after we were married, <laughs> obviously. So were you, were you first a, were you a Democrat when you? I was nothing. <laughs> I don't say that with pride because uh, uh, that, that was wrong and I you know but young people in those days weren't as involved politically and um, uh, and you should be but the truth of it was I wasn't 
Well, if, if your husband had not continued in politics after the governorship years, do you think you would have gone back to your film career? Oh, I doubt it. I doubt it. I, I, I made a conscious decision, and, and Ronnie never asked me to do this, but uh, I'd seen too many marriages in Hollywood fail because, with people with, uh, both in the business. You know, when you're a woman in this business, in that business, uh, everything is done for you on the set, and everybody is telling you every minute how dear and darling you are, how wonderful you are, and it's just, I mean, it's pretty heady. And then when you come home, you expect the same thing. <laughs> and when it isn't given to you, then there's going to be trouble. <laughs> and I didn't want that to happen. So I made the choice, no. I enjoyed it. I loved it when I was doing it. And just to, t to touch on just one or two um, of the events and issues of, of the Reagan years, now, Barbara Bush has recently said that she was pro-choice while her husband wasn't. Was that a similar situation for you and President Reagan agreeing to disagree but not in public? Or Why did I know this was going to come up? <laughs> I just knew it was going to come up. Well, I don't know where you'd put me, really. Uh... I'm against abortion. I, I, don't, I don't believe in abortion. On the other hand, I believe in a woman's choice. So it puts me somewhere in the middle, but I don't know what you call that. <laughs> That's the best way I can answer it. Okay. And also during the, um, during the period... United States and the Soviet Union. Well, when Gorbachev first came into power, after Chernenko and Andropov, and I don't know who else was it. Everybody kept dying on yeah. us. <laughs> you felt very strongly about the opportunity there for a friendship between your husband and Gorbachev. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you could... I mean, you had, an, uh, in a sense, again, a personal influence which may have resulted in a political effect. Well, it just seemed to me so silly <laughs> to have these two huge countries here and not have them talking to each other and try to, try to get together. But as I say, everybody kept dying on us on the other side. And so we had to wait till somebody would live long enough <laughs> that we could that we could uh, talk. And and uh, but I, I did yes, I did feel strongly about that. Uh, one one last question for me, and then we're going to take some of the questions that the uh, uh, class had submitted last week. Um, and I will I will read those, and people can stand up. Um, introduce themselves from their seats. Um, one last question, though. October of 1987, the most difficult time probably for you. Cancer surgery. You lost your mother. The book came out 
Iran-Contra supposedly written from interviews with William Casey while he was dying in the hospital. And there you were. You had just come out of surgery. How did you, how did you cope with all of, all of that and what lay ahead? As I look back on it, I don't know. I just don't know. And I, um, Betty Rollins wrote a book. I don't know whether you know or not, but Betty Rollins wrote a book called First You Cry. And um, I'd had, Ronnie and I had never made any secret about, as, as a matter of fact, we, doctor's daughter talking. Um, when he had his colon cancer, when he had his <laughs> prostate cancer, uh, when he was shot, we were very, we were very open about what happened, and um, and we did, they say, encourage people to go in for for uh, exams for their colon or the prostate, and in my case, uh, breast. Uh, now I di- I didn't. I'd heard about Betty Rollins' book, but I hadn't read it. I, I didn't know any, I didn't have any reason, I didn't think, to read it. Um, but when I had my surgery and I came home and um, three days later, my mother died. And... Um, My mother and I were very close, and it was very hard. And I hadn't had time to adjust to the surgery, and I never had time to grieve for my mother. I had I got on the plane and I went right away to Phoenix, and um, and did everything you do. Um, and, but then I had to come back because the Gorbachevs were coming. And uh, I had to make all those arrangements. And it's very, very important, and I would say to anybody, mine was a peculiar circumstance, but it is important to have a time to just cry, just let it all out. Otherwise you'll end up doing what I do and just almost did. Um, the tears come when you least expect it, and something will trigger it, and, um, and you start to cry. But if you'd had a chance to really let it out, um, it would have been so much better. Do you think that's... That's just because of your own personal nature, or was it because of the again the expectations of the role of first lady that you had to come back and I had no chance carl there wasn't there wasn't i mean I came home from the hospital, and three days later, mother was gone i and then the Gorbachevs came and then the, the Gor- there, there was no there was no chance <laughs> it was a it was a terrible time. Ronald and Nancy Reagan's final chapter together was overshadowed by his Alzheimer's disease. Their long partnership ended with his death in 2004 at the age of 93. 
Her devoted care led to a shift in her own public image as Americans watched with admiration. In that 1999 interview with C-SPAN's Brian Lamb, she confided the depth of her loss as her husband slipped away. What have you learned about this disease? It is probably the worst disease you can ever have. Why? Because you lose contact and you're not able to share. In our case, you're not able to share all those wonderful memories that that we have, and we had a we had a wonderful life. Can you have a conversation that makes sense to you with the president? Not now. No. The letter itself. What were the circumstances in which he wrote the letter? Were you with him when he wrote? I was with him. We were in the library, and he was sitting at the uh, table in the library, and he sat down and wrote it, and. Um, that was it. First draft? First draft. He, he crossed out one word there, or two, two words. I think it's one, one or two words. I don't know what, the, what that was. Um, but only Ronnie could write a letter like that. As we close our look at Nancy Reagan, you'll hear first how she thought her White House life looked from the outside and how she actually experienced it. And then you'll hear her talk about why she wrote her memoirs from a 1989 speech she gave as part of a Library of Congress symposium. I think they thought that the White House was so glamorous and your role was so, what you did was so glamorous, your life was so glamorous, and all they saw were uh, the parties and the meeting people and, you know, And I've got to tell you, I never worked harder in my life. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. You know, one of the things I soon realized after I moved to the White House was that the First Lady has a tremendous platform which she can use to speak out on various issues, and I chose the drug issue. But ironically, in some ways, a First Lady loses her freedom of speech. There were things I longed to say over those eight years. (laughs) But I couldn't. At times it wasn't appropriate. At other times it would have been, it would have further complicated my husband's life. And I don't mind telling you it was very frustrating. I, I was reminded when I was thinking about this, the first role that I ever played on the stage, I played a, a character who'd been kidnapped and kept up in the attic. Then in the second act, I, they, I escaped. And I came down on the stage and I said my one line, I had a big part, as you can see, and I had my one line, and then they took me back upstairs to the attic again. And there were times that I felt that I was in the attic. (laughs) But writing the book was a great release for me. So in the memoirs, I do talk about the renovation of the White House, the China about the influence I was said to have had on my husband's decision, 
astrology, my relationship with Don Regan and Raisa Gorbachev. I talk about my own family and its troubles and all the things I didn't think I could comment on at the time. And I could say what I wanted because my husband didn't have to face any more elections. At first, I had never thought about writing a book, but the longer we were in the White House and the more books that seemed to be popping up, I decided that after eight years of silence, I should. And we'll have to see what the reviewers and the people think about that. But there is a certain dignity in silence, which is very appealing to me. But I felt that personally and for my children and without sounding too grandiose, for history, that I wanted to present my side of those eight years as First Lady. I'll tell you the hardest part in writing this book, which is called My Turn, there's a fine line you have to walk. You step on one side and you sound defensive. You step on the other side and you sound like you're trying to get even. I hope I've avoided those pitfalls by just being honest with myself and thus the reader. I've tried just to let Nancy be Nancy for a change. In doing the book, I found that the life of a first lady is sometimes difficult to explain to those who haven't been through it. One thing most people don't realize, and I certainly didn't realize it until I'd gotten a few bumps and scrapes, is this. You just don't move into the White House. You have to learn how to live there. Life in that mansion is different and I don't mean simply because it's the only house in the country that comes equipped with surface-to-air missiles. And I don't mean because when your husband leaves the house, he often wears a bulletproof vest. It's not just the knowledge that a military officer with a black briefcase containing the nuclear codes is, day or night, always only seconds away from the man you married. Those things are a price you pay for the honor of living there. And it is an honor. Without a moment's hesitation, I can tell you, I wouldn't trade our time in the White House for even extra years added on to my life. The remarkable thing is how magnified life is there at the mansion. The highs are higher, the lows are lower, and the highs and lows are exaggerated even further by the tremendous scrutiny of the media. I was very naive when I arrived, and that sounds strange, I know, particularly after listening to Jim and the, uh, his recitation of the fact that our life had been a, a public life, really, all of our adult lives. But I was naive. I remember during the 1980 campaign telling Helen Thomas, the reporter for UPI, as I'm sure you know, that there would always be a part of my life that would be private. And she said, you have no idea what it's like until you get there. And she was so right. I was completely unprepared for the intense scrutiny. Now, I fully realize that in writing my memoirs, I've stripped away even more privacy, privacy that was already tattered following all the various kiss and tell books. But oddly enough, I felt that I could start rebuilding some private life by being public about some things. And so that's what I've done. But no matter what you do, the stories will continue. Some are amusing, some are maddening, and some hurt. What I finally learned is that you never stop being hurt by such stories, but you do stop being surprised. 
One of the areas where I got a lot of criticism, of course, was in the close attention to my husband's health and welfare. But I believe that this is the First Lady's primary concern. She is, first of all, a wife. That's why she's there. And the book offers no apologies in this regard. A president has advisors to counsel him on foreign affairs, on defense, on, the, on economy, on politics, on any number of matters. But no one among all those experts is there to look after him as an individual with human needs, as a flesh and blood person who must deal with the pressures of holding the most powerful position on earth. And that was my job. Next week, Hillary Clinton, an overtly political first lady who successfully ran for the United States Senate, served as Secretary of State and then campaigned for the presidency herself.